Father, thank you. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Lord, would you lift our confidence in you a little bit higher? Would you help us to see you a little bit more clearly? Would you lead us to fall more deeply in love with you and to trust your word more completely? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was the evening of October 27 of 312. The Emperor Constantine was facing a large battle the next day. And I don't know the thoughts that were going through his mind, but as he was thinking about it, suddenly he was, as historians tell us, he told them, Eusebius was one of them, he told Eusebius, suddenly I saw the sign in the sky. What did he see in the sky? He saw a cross, or some say it was the Cairo, the, the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. And he saw this in the sky. And then he was told, in this sign, you shall conquer. You can overcome the world by simply conquering in this sign. And so, what did he do? He emblazoned the Cairo on the shields of his soldiers. And he began to conquer the world in the name of Jesus. Let's go out and let's kill men, women, and children. Let's go out and defeat armies because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? No, don't say amen, please. I know that was a trick, amen, all right? Amen means let it be so. Don't let it be so, right? This is a terrible idea. This is what we call taking truth, Jesus, the cross, a wonderful thing, and totally distorting it. Last week, we talked about how a lonely king, who we talked about a little bit longer, how lonely he was. A lonely king received a vision, a dream in the night. And he dreamed about a statue. And this statue, what was the contents of that statue? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. And then the, this rock that was cut out without hands that smashes it. And we focused in especially on that rock. That is what the dream is about. Don't get distracted from the fact that the dream is about the rock. It's a different type of kingdom that's completely different than any other kingdom that has been set up in history. And Nebuchadnezzar, at first he's excited about it. He says, Daniel, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. But then some time passes by. And he begins to think about the words that Daniel has told him. And he begins to think, I am that head of gold, aren't I? I yeah, Babylon is powerful. But, but hang on. After you will come another kingdom. And so he goes to the plains of Dura. And he begins to construct from all of the wealth, the treasures that he's gotten from Conquering other kingdoms from going into temples of other gods. He gets the wealth, the gold, and he brings it to the plains of Dura. And they would have had there these giant furnaces in order to, to melt the gold, to make the bricks for the stand for the statue. And we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. Why an image that's entirely of gold? God had told him, I'm going to do something different. A rock that's cut out without hands, different from every other kingdom that's going to do away with every idea that any kingdom has been based upon throughout history. It didn't just take care of the toes, but it ground into powder everything all the way back to Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar, he builds his all of gold. Why do you think that was? 
my kingdom, is the one that I want to last forever and ever and ever. I think that the way that I rule is actually the way that, that things can operate on an eternal basis. I think that this idea of Babylon is the way. Prophets and Kings, page 504, says it was entirely of gold, this statue, symbolic throughout of Babylon as an internal, indestructible, all-powerful kingdom, which should break in pieces all other kingdoms and stand forever. Might will make right. Babylon will crush everybody else into submission, and this is how we can have eternal an eternal kingdom. Well, the height of the statue was 60 cubits, and its width, 6 cubits. That picture wasn't exactly on that dimensions, but that's about 90 feet and about 9 feet wide. So it's a pretty skinny and tall image. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Notice how Prophets and Kings continues, page 505. The enemy of mankind knew that truth, unmixed with error, is a power mighty to save, but that when used to exalt what? Self and to further the projects of men, it becomes a power of evil. You know, he takes this image, he, he's given this dream that comes from God, and he, he knows that God is pursuing him and, and giving this to him, and he, he recognizes this, but he takes it and he twists the truth. Just like Constantine did, he took the cross and he made this how he was going to conquer the world. Constantine didn't just do that with a cross. He took that with many other symbols in Christianity and many important things in Christianity, making laws about how people should worship that would combine the empire based upon pagan principles. Nebuchadnezzar is looking for an establishment of his kingdom. And we looked at, uh, about a year ago, looking at Revelation 13, we looked at this story, and I encourage you just to, to go back and refresh if you've forgotten. We looked at the image of the beast, selfishness or selflessness. And there we encapsulated how the fact was that, that Nebuchadnezzar recognized, we found, archaeologists have found tablets, that he was having issues in his empire. He's looking to make sure that his kingdom is going to last. He's got to put down rebellion. He's got to make sure that things are going to work out. And we tie that into Revelation chapter 13 that tells us that the beast is going to set up an image. And I'm not going to re-go over that, but I encourage you to, to check that out when you have some time. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's calling together the people to the dedication of this image. Verse 2, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Who are these people? What types of positions are these? Leaders, politicians, government officials. They're, they're the bureaucrats. They're, they're what runs the government. And where are they from? Everywhere. We learned, uh, and we'll look at it again actually in a second, that there's a province of Babylon... But then there's other provinces of the areas that he has conquered from Egypt to Assyria to all these different places in the known world that he has conquered. There's these provinces that he's set up. And these are the leaders over these provinces from around the world that Nebuchadnezzar is ruling over. To come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So everybody that comes, what do they know that they're coming to? Everybody that comes, they're coming to the dedication of an image. An image that is to represent Babylon as enduring forever and ever. So they gather together. 
Uh, we're not going to read all those again, but the point in Daniel is to emphasize that all of these officials come. All of these government officials are coming together from the different provinces, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You imagine that vast throng of people, the important people, the ones who are ruling the world, the most powerful men in the world are present, except for maybe one that we know about. Verse 4, then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Notice here that this isn't just the the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. It's It's not just the natives who are there. This is people from around the world, the nations that have been conquered by Babylon. To you, O peoples, nations, and languages. Can you think in the Bible about a herald, a messenger, who comes with a message to people's nations, tribes, tongues? The first angel's message. There's a, an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying, fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. Worship the true living God, the creator. This is the counterfeit of that. This is, is it how Babylon attempts to set up its kingdom. And it, it's very important for us to understand the story for today because this is a, a message for the whole world. The herald asks everybody to come together and says, hey, all nations, tribes, tongues, and people, this is for everybody. At the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, these instruments, some of them are actually just transliterated from other languages. They're instruments from around the world. The idea is that, again, the idea is bringing together people from around the world with the purpose of uniting them with what every dictator has always wanted. One kingdom that will rule the world forever. It's what we learned about last week. That's what Hitler was was aiming for. That's what Napoleon wanted. That's what... Dictator after dictator has wanted to rule the world, and Nebuchadnezzar is bringing everybody together to worship the statue. And in worshiping the statue, the purpose is to acknowledge this nation is going to endure forever. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Hold up. <laughs> this guy hasn't learned, has he? <laughs> In chapter 2, this is exactly what we find him doing with the wise men. He's saying, okay, tell me the interpretation of the dream and the dream itself, or I'm going to burn you, or I'll reward you if you tell me the interpretation. I'm going to give you a reward, or I'm going to give you punishment. Come and worship or burn. Have you ever heard that before? Repent, turn to Jesus, or burn. People hold up signs like this and feel that they are doing the world some sort of good. They feel that somehow by threatening people with punishment, and there are people who are afraid of Seventh-day Adventists because uh, we don't talk enough maybe about the torture that goes on in hell. And maybe, maybe people are going to, they're going to want to live a wild life because they're not afraid of God enough. We need to make sure that they're afraid of God. That's Nebuchadnezzar's way of setting up an eternal kingdom. That's how the kings and kingdoms have operated throughout history. And so you can't blame Christians. You can't blame some of us who may feel that way. It tends to be the way that we look at how authority is established by threatening punishment. Well, let's keep going in the story. Uh, 
those different instruments play, and as the instruments play, the text tells us that the people bow down from every nation, tongue, language, nation. They're all bowing down. But then this happens, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, who are the Chaldeans? It's specifying the, the wise men. These are, these are the, the originals who founded the nation of Babylon. This is the, the race of people who, the wise men, the race of people that started Babylon. These are the natives. Uh, I don't know if native is the right word because they conquered Babylon. But this is, this is who uh, Nebuchadnezzar belonged to. That certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. All right, so the Chaldeans, the one race of people, is accusing the Jews of an issue here. They're a little bit jealous is really what's going on there. The word for accused there is like they take them and they're, they're chewing them up. They're biting them. <laughs> That's kind of what our words do with each other sometimes. They bite we bite and chew each other up by the things that we say about each other and we ruin each other's reputation. They're, they're thinking, how can we take this and attack the Jews? Because we don't really like them very much because you remember what happened back in chapter 2? Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. He's not just in one of those provinces out there, but he's and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is exalted above everybody else, and he's a foreigner. He's a Jew. They're not too happy about this. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel sat in the gate of the king. These foreigners were now ruling over the Chaldeans, and they weren't happy about it. They should have been happy about it, um, what had just happened in chapter 2? You remember why they're at this gathering? Why they're able to be breathing at this point in time? Because of the fact that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sought the mercies of God together. And as they sought the mercies of God, I encourage you to keep seeking the mercies of God, the compassion of God. As they sought that together, the vision was revealed to them. And when Daniel goes into the court... Although he had started off praying that don't, I, I don't want to die along with the rest of the wise men. He goes into the court and he says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. These guys who are accusing the Jews are forgetting so quickly that they were the very ones who had given them life and had given them this gracious opportunity. Verse 12 continues, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. Now notice how it differentiates. They do not serve your gods, right? So there's the gods, or worship the golden image which you have set up. This tells us that this golden image, was it to represent a god? Doesn't sound like it. Well, in a way it is, you're right. Uh, but it says they don't serve your gods, or worship the image. The image is to represent Babylon. And they were to bow down to this idea of this empire, this nation that could endure forever and ever and ever. And they were to worship this idea. So they come and they accuse him to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. You know, I've discovered something about anger. In my life, I've struggled with anger a lot. And I realized that when I get angry, it's because I can't control something. 
I'm, I'm losing control or I'm frustrated about, or I'm trying, maybe I'm just trying to control something. And when I feel like things are out of my control, it can be frustrating, it can be upsetting. Nebuchadnezzar, each time that you find him in a fury and a rage, you find him in Daniel chapter 2, he's in a fury and a rage because he can't control his wise men in order to get them to give him the dream. He threatens them, he offers them a reward, and they can't give him the dream, and so he goes into a rage. And now, although he's done all of this to unite the world, three people, just three people, are choosing to ignore his control. So he gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. It's funny in the, uh, the language of the ancient Near East, this is written in Aramaic, but it has Hebrew cognates, which the, the language for anger is basically heat. It's like you're, you're getting hot. You know, you've heard somebody when they're get, getting angry, that person's getting hot. I can tell that they, they, need, to, they need to cool down for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar's getting hot. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Is this, is this the reality? Is this what's going on? Now notice what he does. Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Worship or burn. But here's the thing. Why is he giving him another chance? Why do you think he's giving him another chance? Well, as I was thinking about it, I think he must have seen something. Parents, do you ever give your children a second chance? It's hard not to. They're so cute. Right? And then you're like, oh, well, I, you deserve this consequence. However, if you do it again, there's going to be a consequence. And if you do it again, there's going to be a consequence. Really? <laughs> I think that Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. I think that there's something he's seen in them, something that he recognizes about them. But then notice what he says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who is Nebuchadnezzar setting up as the supreme God? Himself. Like, who's going to deliver you from my... There, there is no God who's going to save you from me. My kingdom is going to endure forever, and I will make that happen. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and make this happen. Notice the youth instructor, March 8, talking about how this favor had come to them. Now the very men who had escaped death through the mercy of God to his servants, I was talking about the Chaldeans, had been the prime movers in securing the decree in regard to the worship of the golden image. So this gives us, this commentary gives us the idea that it's actually these wise men who have pushed Nebuchadnezzar in the direction of wanting to make this image, this statue. Now notice what it goes on to say. But the three Hebrews made no mention of these things, They knew that a controversy with the king would only increase his fury. This is fascinating to watch how they answer the king. And and take a step back for a second. What are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing at the dedication of an image? At, At what point didn't they just draw the line? 
You think about it. They had chance after chance to draw the line. They could have said when, when the Babylonian army came to Jerusalem, we're going to fight to the death. When they got hauled off to Babylon and, and then called into the courts of the king, they could have run for the hills at that point. But each step of the way, like we saw in Daniel chapter 1, they're relying upon the word of God. It's, it's based upon what they read in the word of God. And without a sure word from God, they're not going to take a stand. And so they go to the, the dedication of an image to represent worshiping this Babylonian empire. And they're there. And then when they respond to the king, they could have lined him out. I don't know how you would have responded. But I think I would have come up with some things. You're going to listen to these guys? Do you realize that we're the ones who prayed and the vision was revealed to Daniel? And it's, these guys shouldn't even be alive. Don't listen to them. I would have given them a whole bunch of reasons why they should not be even listening to them. That tends to be how I answer things. But notice how they answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, now this is important. These are the only words that we have, I understand, in Scripture from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This, This tells us what's going on inside of the minds of the three others besides Daniel in Babylon. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Another translation, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Uh, That had to have been a totally foreign concept to Nebuchadnezzar. You don't need to defend yourself. The world operates by fighting. The world, I've conquered the world by fighting. You're not going to fight me on this? We have no need to defend ourselves before you in this. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. I want to have that kind of faith. How about you? I want to, want to believe and trust that God is able to deliver no matter what I'm going through. What gave them this type of confidence? What do you think gave them the ability to trust like this? God? Yeah? Any other ideas? Experience? Yeah, the experiences that they'd already had leading up to this. How about the Word of God? How about going to Isaiah chapter 43? I heard it. But now thus says the Lord. Remember, this is a hundred years written before they're there. They would have known what Isaiah had written. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. They Notice when they're saying, our God is able to deliver us. They're not saying this, this God who's your creator, this God over there. They're saying, our God. Just ask you this morning, is he your God? Do you know that he's your personal savior? Do you know that he's your personal friend? Because he wants to be. God is on our side. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Maybe they were thinking in their minds like, okay, this has happened before. They went through the Jordan River. They went through the Red Sea. This has happened before. And then God goes on to promise something that had never happened before to our our knowledge. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. You can trust the promises of God. And you can have a really important job and do a lot of important things like Daniel and his friends. They were, do you imagine that they probably worked some 70, 80, 90 hour weeks in Babylon trying to manage the the Babylonian province? They had to spend a lot of time studying Babylonian literature and studying all of these things. 
but they knew the promises of God. No matter how busy our lives are, we've got to find time to root ourselves in the promises of God. Because this is where we we find courage to found our lives on the faithfulness of Jesus. The, The promise goes on. It gets even more beautiful. Since you are precious in my sight, and I love you. They knew that in theirs, that God, the God of the universe saw them as precious. The God of the universe loved them. Fear not, for I am with you. We saw that the, the Chaldeans, they said the gods don't dwell with flesh. But they knew that God was with them. You know, this past week, uh, a family was going through a challenging time. And, and uh, so I text Alana that I was praying for. I text her uh, uh, a, a Bible promise. I text her Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Now I meant it for the challenge that she was facing and that her family is facing. And because Wade had an accident. And, and so I sent, sent that to her hoping that that would encourage her that, that God's going to see them through this. But something happened and she called me up a little bit later on. She said, your text came at just the right time. I didn't know what was going on. I, I can take no credit for that. Obviously, it had to have been Jesus who wants his promises to be there for us when we're going through hard times. She said, I, I went into a particular medical office and I saw the, uh, the secretary there in the chiropractor's office. And then I said, how are you doing? She said, not good. I said, is it your health? She, she said, is it your health? Uh, this, the secretary responded, uh, no, it's just family issues. And Alana said, well, we should pray about that. <laughs> it's a great response when you notice that somebody's going through something. And she said that because this lady had offered to pray for her sometime back. And that had meant a lot to Alana. And they had that type of relationship. She said, you're right, we should. In fact, I'll talk to you more about this when you come back out. So she goes into the appointment. She comes back out. And as she comes back out, she begins to talk with her, and as she's talking with her, she tells her how, how terrible things had gotten for her in her a relationship and, and how, how dangerous really things were for her. And, and she was in a real time of trouble. And then Alana looks at her phone, and she sees Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. And so she was able to share that little nugget with that lady, and the lady was was so thankful for the word of God and the promises that she could rest upon. And they prayed together, and that meant so much to her that that evening she was calling Alana. She said, I hope you don't mind that I, you gave me permission to call you, but I looked you up in the books here at the office, and I, I just have to tell you that you praying with me and sharing that promise with me, later on it gave me the confidence to tell somebody else about Jesus who was going through a really rough time. And that person needed that. And, and in fact, I, I'm going to get them a Bible and I'm going to help them realize that what they really need in their lives is Jesus. Never underestimate what sharing just one small promise might do in somebody's life. There is power in the Word of God. We can base our lives upon His promises because He's faithful. It's not, the story of Daniel is not about our faith. It's about the faithfulness of God and trusting in his faithfulness. Now notice, they said, if that is the case, our God, the one that we have this relationship with, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But I love this. But even if not, do I pray like that? 
even if not, O king, that we do not serve, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Do you see that these three have experienced something deeper? They're not worried about the reward. They're not worried about punishment. They just love God. That makes all the difference in the world. I mean, think about your relationships. You know how it is when a husband and wife, a bride and a groom, they hold hands at the altar. What types of things go into the vows? What types of things did you vow to your spouse? To honor, cherish, when? Forever? What else? In sickness and in health. Maybe it was in financial prosperity or poverty. The we tend to, to recognize the fact that, that love is bigger than the rewards of the punishment. If, how many of you wives love your husbands because he's told you he's going to punish you if you don't? I don't want you to raise your hand if that's true. Okay, how many wives love your husbands because of the gifts? Don't raise your hand. How, because of the gifts, the lavish gifts that your husband gives to you. You see, that's not love if it's based upon rewards or punishment. We get real worried that, oh, we, we have to recognize the reward and the punishment or else we won't really love God. That isn't love. Notice what the Desire of Ages says. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. The reason that these men had such incredible confidence in the face of such incredible trial is that they were not afraid of fear. They were not fearful of the punishment. And they weren't worried about whether or not God would reward them. They simply loved God for who God was, for all of his mercies, his goodness. They knew their God. And Daniel eleven thirty two says, those who know their God will be strong and perform great exploits. It's not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. They behold the Savior's matchless love and the sight of him attracts. It softens and subdues the soul. Love awakens in the heart of the beholders and they follow him. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That word fury, think of a furious flame. It's, it's getting hotter and hotter. Nebuchadnezzar is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the word for the expression is simply the word image. You remember, the, they, they set up an image. Daniel, first, Daniel revealed the dream about the image. And then Nebuchadnezzar setting up a, an image. And Nebuchadnezzar is so focused on this, this system of government, of inflicting punishment in order to get people to follow you, that the image of his face is now transformed into that which he has come to dwell upon. But if you dwell upon Jesus, if you dwell upon the God who loves you infinitely, that would lay down his life, that nothing can separate you from his love, you will be transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, probably to meet, match what's going on inside of Nebuchadnezzar's head. And that furnace gets hotter and hotter. That furnace that was used probably to fire the bricks and to make the the uh, gold there, and 
There, you know, this is like modern day Iraq. There's plenty of oil. They could have used oil and heaped it on there in order to make it hotter. We don't know exactly how, but we know that this was a furiously hot, raging, fiery furnace. And he commanded certain mighty men. He chooses the strongest men, mighty men of valor, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Imagine, is there what the thoughts that must have been going through their minds? Simply trusting. And the God that they knew said that they were precious in his sight. Knowing that God had said, the flames aren't going to touch you, but they don't care. Even if God doesn't do that for them, they're still going to worship him and ascribe worth to him throughout eternity. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their garments, and were cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. And what happened to those men? Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them into the fiery furnace. You know, this is actually something that you see happening time and time again in the Bible. Think about the story of Esther. Haman, when he constructs that that massive uh, gallows in order to hang Mordecai on it, who ends up getting hung on the gallows? Haman. When Daniel is accused and thrown into the, the lion's den, the wise men work it out to get him in the lion's den, who ends up getting eaten by lions? The wise men who are trying to get Daniel eaten by lions. Proverbs says if you dig a hole, you're going to fall into it. If you roll a rock up the hill, it's going to roll back on you. The reality is that time and time again in the Bible, you see that God's wrath is in letting go and letting you reap the full reward of sin in your life, which is horrendous. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Imagine the shock on his face. Look, he answered, I see four men. What's that word? Loose. Do you catch that? These men are thrown into the fire. They're in the midst of the the most intense trial of their life. And what has taken place? They've been set free. Friends, so often I lament the trials in my life. But maybe that's the way that God's setting me free. Maybe God's going to use that fire to refine me and to take out some of the dross in my life so that I can actually be free again. He wants to set us free. Those four men were loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They're in the midst of their trial, and they are not hurt. Why? And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The Babylonians believe that gods don't dwell among men. The Hebrews believe God is with us. His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But here's the question. How did that king sitting on his throne as he's looking out and he sees the four in there and he sees that man, how did he know that he looked like the son of God? How did he know that that's who it was? Could it have been the lives that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived? Look at this commentary from Prophets and Kings. Page 509, it says, How did that heathen king know what the son of God was like? The Hebrew captives, filling positions of trust in Babylon, had in life and character represented before him the truth. Their life, their character, had represented to this king what the second person of the Trinity is like. What God 
is like, had represented to them what this second person of the Trinity who would be born as a baby, Jesus, is like, what the Son of God is like. When asked for a reason of their faith, they had given it without hesitation. They had told of Christ, the Redeemer, to come. I would have loved to have sat in on those Bible studies. What was it that they told them in order to to reveal that there's a coming Messiah, that there is a coming Christ who's going to rescue us? And in the form of the fourth, in the midst of the fire, the king recognized the Son of God. Your life, when you are in the midst of trial, is actually one of the best demonstrations of who Jesus is. I know we want our lives to go good. I know we want things to be peachy. We want everything to just be smooth sailing. But it's in the midst of trial that gold shines out. It's in the midst of trial that the Son of God is revealed. It's in the midst of your trials that you can reflect God's character and show to the world that He is gracious. You can show what the true Hebrew names were of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember them? Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Azariah, Yahweh is my help. Mishael, who belongs to God? And Daniel, who is my judge? God is on my side. They represented what the Son of God looked like by the character that they lived in the midst of a raging fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Notice, where did Nebuchadnezzar go? He went near the mouth where his strongest soldiers had been destroyed. And he's, he, he's, in order to do that, he's finally having to come down off his throne. And suddenly he's distracted from this gigantic worship celebration that was designed to set up his empire. He's forgotten about the statue because he's seen Jesus. You want people to forget about the world? Show them Jesus. Don't tell them about how bad their statues are. They didn't have to do that. They had to tell them about the one true God. Spend your time building up Jesus, showing the love of God. That is what will convince people. You don't have to show them YouTube videos about how horrible the world is. We recognize the world is a terrible place, but Jesus is incredible. Thank you. Can somebody say hallelujah? Jesus is the son of God. You guys got it this week. That's incredible. Right, verse 26. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. This is the third time that that word gathered has has been used in in context of this chapter. The first time it was used when it said that Nebuchadnezzar is going to gather them together. The second time is when they actually gathered together for the image. And the third time, they're gathered together to see Jesus. To see what Jesus has done in three young men's lives who trusted in him in the midst of a raging fire. (laughs) I love this picture because you see them, they're almost like smelling him right now. They're just inspecting him and they're in awe looking at what just happened to these guys. They walked out of a raging, burning, fiery furnace and they saw those men in whose bodies the fire had no power. All you need is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And the hair of their head was not singed. I can tell you, I've just jumped through tall fires and had a lot of hair on my body singed. They're standing in a raging inferno. Not a hair of their head was singed, nor were their garments affected. 
Notice, only the things tying them up were affected. Maybe that was even chains. Who knows? And the smell of fire was not on them. Have you gone camping recently? Sat around a campfire for a little bit? It's hard to get that smell of smoke off you. You're washing your hair for days. I got to get the smell out of my hair. God completely shielded them. All you need is to know that Jesus is with you. He's Emmanuel, God with you. There's reason to stand and not bow down. There's reason uh, they knew the commandment was very clear. Thou shalt not bow. And bowing was where they drew the line. They went to the dedication of this statue. They served this government. They did their best to serve the government of Babylon, of a heathen king who had taken the implements from their temple and put it into the implements of his God. There's a lot of Christians today who would not serve a government like that. But we're called to live lives that represent God's character, even in the courts of heathen kings like Nebuchadnezzar. Because look at what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. All of his wise men are gathered around and all of them are focused on the Son of God. They're recognizing God's goodness. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Unfortunately, is it his God yet? Not yet. Who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. He recognized this trust, this loving trust that they had. It was something that he didn't have with his advisors. It was something that he didn't have anywhere nearby. But he saw it in these men, trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies. Revelation chapter 12 says, they did not love their lives even to the death. Friends, as Christians, death is nothing to be afraid of because the one who founded our religion went through the grave already, and it cannot harm you distrust in Jesus, that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own. Look at this. This, this. this ceremony that was to celebrate Babylon, look at what it turns into. Prophets and Kings comments and describes it. The tidings of their wonderful deliverance were carried to many countries by the representatives of the different nations that had been invited by Nebuchadnezzar to the dedication. He's invited everybody together to, to celebrate self, to celebrate Babylon And God turns it into a worship celebration of Jesus. Can you say amen? Through the faithfulness of his children, God was glorified in all the earth. We lament what's going on in the world, but friends, maybe it's through the fiery furnace of what we're going through. The the character of Jesus will be represented to the world. Just know that he is Emmanuel, God with you. 1 Peter is written to those who are suffering trials. Notice what First Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody had some trials this past week, past month, past year? You've been grieved by various trials. The trials they were going through, though, was the Emperor Nero persecuting Christians, burning them like candles in the streets of Rome. This is a little bit bigger trials than we tend to face in our world today. Notice that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. You see, the genuineness of your faith in the midst of trial will be so precious that it will shine brighter than Nebuchadnezzar's image. And everybody will be distracted from whatever the Antichrist power sets up in order to distract them because they see Jesus in you, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
You know, life can throw you a lot of challenges. Life can be difficult, but going through the challenge can actually create a more beautiful and strong reality in your life. Things aren't easy. Um, well, I'll put it this way. Just, just recently, uh, Leah and I were talking, and one of you actually mentioned this to me, that you were talking to Leah, and, and Leah had said, you know, it's been pretty tough recently with our kids. Now, we love our kids. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're sweet a lot of the time. And uh, really, truly, <laughs> she said, but you know, all of the trial that we went through, and for those of you that don't know, you can look up Leah's testimony or mine early on. We went through years wanting kids. And the trial that we went through in order to have kids, she said, that has prepared us and strengthened us to treasure these kids, to want to do our best for these kids. If it wasn't for all that we'd gone, gone through, praise God for those of you that have kids easily because God knew that you could be good parents without a trial in your life. <laughs> but for some of us, in order to be good parents, to treasure our children, going through rough times, it helps. And recently, um, just, just this last week, Leah told me one day, she said, you know, today was the hardest day of my entire life. We were just, is this the end of the day? Well, hold up. <laughs> the hardest day of your entire life? <laughs> she said, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. The hardest day of my entire life. <laughs> you see, I mean, we have Livy. She was in a cast. She got the cast off yesterday, praise God. We've had the, the new addition of Nate who just blesses our lives. But it can be challenging. It can pull you. It can test you. But I'm confident of this. I know it because I see Livy's leg. It's going to be stronger now because it healed than it could have ever been before. And the same with us. As we go through the challenge of parenting three children, which is like juggling three balls rather than just two, God is going to strengthen us through that. And we enjoy these incredible children. They're such an incredible blessing to us. But every trial that you go through, every bit of testing in your life, God uses in order to refine something that is far more precious than gold. And that will tell the world in a way that's better than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language who speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Now I know the true God for the second time around, so I'm going to punish anybody who doesn't worship him. (laughs) He doesn't actually know the true God yet. And there's many Christians who we need to introduce to the true God. The God who we follow because we've fallen in love with him, not because of fear of punishment or hope of reward, but because we simply trust him and love him, even in the midst of fiery trials in our life, because that is where something more precious than gold can shine out of our hearts, as people see the character of Jesus in us. God is your judge. He's on your side. Let's pray together. God, thank you for who you are. Father, I pray for those here who maybe have never heard some of this before. I pray that you would awaken an interest in them to study it a little bit more and to see, is this really who this God is? Just like you were pursuing Nebuchadnezzar, thank you that you're pursuing each one of us. For those of us that have heard this story before, Father, I pray that something would would sink in and that, that there would be rubber that meets the road in our lives. That we would implement these things. 
that we would trust when we go through trials tomorrow, next week, next month, that that very fire is what you may be using in order to reveal Jesus to the world. Father, help us to know your promises, to take time to get to know your promises so that we can have a faith, a faith in your faithfulness that will endure forever. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.